0: Hi, it's Jonathan Cotton with the Good Feet Store, and I've shared before how I love an organization called TAPS, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. Recently, we invited some TAPS family members who had lost a military loved one to have dinner with us. As we listened to their stories, I was reminded again of how the loss of a military loved one is such a devastating experience. Not only is the loved one gone, but often they lose their military community and sometimes an entire lifestyle. My heart was sad over their grief yet my spirit was inspired by their courage. Then to top it off, I was amazed at their graciousness as they thanked us for just listening. At the Good Feet Store, we love helping you get out of pain and back into the life you love, and we love supporting the work of TAPS. Come in today for your free fitting and test walk and ask any of our team members why TAPS is an organization that every American can support. Visit goodfeet.com for the location nearest you it's say it ain't contagious with adrian burgos
1: craig calcaterra stephen goldman frank Garrity, lincoln mitchell and tova wang
2: welcome everybody to say it ain't contagious my name is tova wang and this is the podcast where we talk about the intersection of baseball politics and social justice And we have an incredible special guest today that I am going to let my colleague and friend Frank Gritty introduce.
3: Hi, thanks, Tova. We are really, really excited to have uh, Dan Epstein with us today. Uh, For those of you who don't know who are listening, Dan is an award-winning journalist, pop culture historian, and an avid baseball fan, I would say also baseball historian, who has written for Rolling Stones, Spin, Men's Journals, the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, among other um, publications. Uh, He's the author of The Acclaimed, uh, one of my favorite books about baseball, Big Hair and Plastic Grass, A Funky Ride Through Baseball in America in the Swinging 70s. He followed up with Stars and Strikes, Baseball in America in in the Bicentennial Summer of 76. And now he's the author of the new book, brand new. I think it just came out about a week ago or so, maybe less. The captain and me on and off the field with Thurman Munson. Uh, Dan, it's great for you to join the Sadie Contagious Gang. Thanks for joining us.
4: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
3: Well, you know, one of the things that I've loved about your work is that, you know, I feel like it, it was a, such a breath of fresh air in terms of baseball historiography. You know, I feel like your work sort of challenged the kind of, you know, the boomer-esque, you know, kind of romantic portraits of post-World War II baseball, you know, with the 50s and the 60s, you know, epitomized even in the work of, you know, Bob Costas, you know, which they wax poetic about Mickey Mantle and Willie really May's people like that. And here you are writing about the 70s in baseball, right? Which is a period that, you know, it does not it has not received the same sort of attention or certainly was perceived in a different way in terms of, you know, looking at it as, a, as an era in which baseball is in transition and decline, you know, because of a, a variety of things you've talked about in your own work. So given that, you know, tell us what informed the production of this book, and in particular, since you're such a skilled storyteller, you know, why decide to tell the story with um, with Ron uh, Ron Bloomberg?
4: Well, it's um, a couple of good questions. Where do I start? Um I guess let, let me start with the second part of that, which is that um, I, I was actually not sure if I was going to write another baseball book uh, or another book in general. Just uh, you know, due to the the vagaries of the publishing industry in uh, in here in in twenty 2020, twenty 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 one, uh, it just it just didn't seem like it was worth it. Um, but then I was introduced to Ron. And uh, Ron had a couple of book ideas. One of which was to, to kind of tell uh, about the human side of Thurman Munson, who's a obviously a, a major character from '70s baseball, but one who has a pretty one dimensional image. And I was a fan of Thurman's uh, back when I was a kid, and even though I wasn't exactly a Yankees fan, I, I, Thurman was my favorite catcher. And it just really seemed like, yeah, this would be a story that would be a lot of fun to tell. Uh, Ron is a really fun guy to talk to, uh, incredibly positive, upbeat person, which, frankly, was, uh, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better person to work with during uh, the pandemic because, uh, you know, I always came away from our, our conversations feeling good about life and with a smile on my face. And, um you know, and, and also, I mean, and this gets back to the first part of your question. I'm all I've always been really interested in the human side of baseball. I love statistics, love the back of baseball cards, etc. But the people themselves, are, uh, you know, who are in the uniform uh, and what they do in their spare time, what their interests are, who they are as people, uh, as human beings, how they relate to other people, whether it's their teammates or sports writers or fans or just, you know, people they see on the street like that, that to me is, is as interesting as, you know, how they prepared for a game or, you know, uh, the game where they hit three home runs or or what have you.
2: I love the book. Um, it feels like you're sitting in a bar or a coffee shop with um, you and Ron and he's talking about Thurman Munson and you're getting all the good stories from the inside it does strike me, and we've talked about this before, how different the lifestyle and the relationships are in baseball today. And I got so nostalgic reading it—just the stories of um, you know Munson and, and Ron going out to Jewish delis <laughs> at night, um, and him introducing him to Dr. Brown Soda, which I love. Um, and it's just so incredibly different than what it is now um the relationship with the reporters too that that he talked about
4: yeah i mean it's it's you know and and this was a common refrain when Ron and i would talk it would just be like you know it's it's nothing like it is it was nothing like it is now and that's you know everything from the salaries and what these guys did in the off season because a lot of them actually had to take second jobs uh in the off season to kind of make ends meet um uh, Thurman was was well paid enough that he was able to just kind of uh, be a real estate mogul in his hometown of Canton, Ohio. But and and Ron kind of lucked into a situation where uh, a, a rather shady uh, record industry executive sort of just paid him to hang around. And uh, but but a lot of players, you know, I mean, the, the famous, the most famous exa- famous example is, and I am completely spacing on his name right now um richie hebner, richie hebner the of, of the pirates and the phillies who uh, uh dug graves for his his family's uh mortuary and and graveyard business in the off season but you know a lot of these guys did much less colorful things they you know worked uh they sold cars or they were kind of like you know pr people for for insurance agencies or or whatever but you know obviously you don't see that now it's like players make more than enough money to live on and uh you know even even if they're they're you know bench warmers and uh you know there there are a lot more opportunities for um you know for 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 ads and endorsement deals and Things like that. So, but yeah, it, it it you know I've talked to a lot of players from the seventies and eighties, and, and they all kind of have a a similar refrain, which is that even though they made a lot less than these guys now, they wouldn't trade it because there was, you know, that this was pre-social media, this was pre-everybody having a phone in their pocket. This was, you know, th- their their lives outside of the ballpark were were more or less their own, and and, you know, I mean, for, for better or worse, uh, you know, what what they got up to as a result, uh, you know, may, may maybe not things they would be completely proud of to talk about today. But but, I, I you know, I, I think there is there they do have a nostalgia for that time that where it's like, like, hey, we could just kind of be ourselves and, you know, people knew us or they didn't know us. But but, you know, we, outside of the ballpark, you know, we weren't. Uh, you know we were hanging with other ball players. We were going to these clubs after after the games, whether it was in New York or you know when they were on the road they all had their favorite places to go to and we talk about that in the book, you know favorite discos or favorite uh favorite nightclubs or favorite uh bars and and uh you get the impression that that would that kind of a lifestyle would be really difficult for today's players to live because there would be just so much uh attention paid to them that it would be hard for them to even just kind of relax and be themselves.
1: Kind of fascinated by this issue of the money side of this, because part of what draws us to this era and the ones before it is that the players are not that radically different from us as people. By the time we get to today, I mean, they make more, you know, they just, the money just makes them different. And and so the big change in the seventies is that the players began to get compensated fairly for their work, which at least I think is a good thing. And then because of that, the game got more popular. So there's this kind of irony that the reason that Richie Hebner had to dig graves, the reason that Roy Campanella had to have a liquor store in Harlem, right, which then driving home from which he, he you know got in a terrible accident, is because they were being exploited. But in but but yet at the same time, what we're what we're doing here is, in some sense, we're celebrating the fruits of at least part of that exploitation. Right.
4: Absolutely. And and you know, and Ron Ron is an interesting case because he's kind of like he was there just, you know, he 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 got one season of getting paid, which was in the, the when he signed as a free agent with the Chicago White Sox after his you know, after injuries had pretty much ruined his career with the Yankees. And, you know, he he, he made more money in 1978 playing for the White Sox and not playing particularly well uh, than he did in like, you know, three or four seasons with the Yankees put together. And um, so he got a taste of that. Uh, and then a lot of guys who, you know, and Thurman, I think, had he lived would have probably wound up making a lot more money than he did although he was you know pretty fairly compensated uh, all things considered uh, in his last couple of seasons with the Yankees but you, you're you're completely right like and I mean it's like it it free agency completely changes the game uh, on a lot of levels and I think free agency you know at its you know uh, at its core is a good thing I, th- I agree with you I think that that the that you know i've always gone to see the players not the owners i've gone you know i collect baseball cards not owner cards it's you know this is you know let, let's let's have the talent be be uh equitably uh, uh compensated but at the same time the you know because then salaries kept going up because you know the market would uh, would bear that uh, the players became further and further removed from reality as we know it. And that's a bummer.
3: I mean, there's those great moments during the 72 strike, which I didn't know. I'm just going to jump in on this point real fast. When they're working out uh, in McComb's Dam Park, Yankees, in the park across the street, which is the now the site of the current stadium, right? Right. Or, you know, they're staying in the Concourse Hotel. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. You know, the, like the, the call-ups. I mean, that's fascinating because that, you know, that had been a legendary hotel and that was supposedly in decline. In the late '60s, early '70s, and so the fact that you know, Bloomberg was staying there, I'm like, wow, that must have been an interesting. Scene in 1969 to be a Yankee fan, you know, staying in this uh, in this changing neighborhood in the Bronx.
0: Right,
4: and 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 there are the the call ups, but it wasn't just the call ups. I mean, a lot of the veteran players stayed there too like, during the you know the course of the season. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, you know somebody's got to somebody's got the man after them. So,
3: You're podcasting <laughs> about a couple of New Yorkers.
4: Yeah.
2: Of the <laughs> <mean>. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
4: but yeah, no, it, it, it is, it is uh, pretty, pretty fascinating to, you know, and, and again, like on the road, they all had their, I mean, obviously all players still stay in hotels on the road, but, but it's, uh, it, it seemed like, you know, the, the kind of joints they stayed in in the mid seventies were a little, you know, a little more affordable, a little less luxe. Uh, oftentimes, within walking distance of the ballpark. I mean, there's some great stories in in this book about uh, Ron and Thurman walking to Fenway or walking back from Fenway uh, to 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 the, I guess the Sheraton uh, where they were staying. Uh, and uh, and in Detroit, it, like like making probably some ill-advised walks to the ballpark. But, you know, they were bored and there was nothing else to do in Detroit during the day. So let's uh, let's take a stroll.
5: Do you, do you get a sense?
1: Uh, you've obviously talked to about a thousand times more 70s ballplayers than I ever have. But the few that I have talked to, it's sometimes like talking to your grandparents who lived through the depression <laughs> and call it the good old days. And, you know, I, I've never been able to tell how much of it is sort of a nostalgia for these we were underpaid we stayed in flea bags and and all this kind of stuff and how much of it was it's actually better and and i always used to just default to the idea that oh it's this nostalgic stuff but when we had howard bryan on here a couple of weeks ago uh he was talking about this connection to to neighborhoods to cities where ball players live that they don't have it now for a lot of the reasons you just discussed they used to have it And, and i wonder how much ball playing today or being a celebrity or an athlete or whatever is alienating today in ways that it just wasn't back in the 70s.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think, um, you know, I, I think Ron Ron is an interesting person to talk to about this because I, he is, I think he, he's very conscious now and was very conscious then of what a thrill and an honor it was to be a major league ball player. Uh, When he was was playing, and and I think that's that's, you know, to to some degree, you talk to any anybody who played in those days, and they all whatever crap they had to deal with, whether it was you know being on flights, you know, uh, uh, being on crappy flights, uh, staying in in divey hotels, um, you know, eating crummy uh, clubhouse spreads like that was you know like that was something they, they complained about and they kind of enjoyed bitching about it uh, but but still there, there was just such a thrill and it felt like such an honor to be you know part of this club the the you know the, the major league ball player thing you know that the, all these guys had grown up worshiping uh, major league baseball players they all had their heroes and 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 that's another thing I kind of you know from players from contemporary players that I've talked to, I don't get that vibe. I don't get that vibe where, like, man, you know, I, I grew up watching George Brett or or whoever, and, like, you know, to, to be now at the level that he was, you know, that it means so much. It's, it's almost kind of like they're too busy on their travel teams or whatever to, to pay much attention to the history of the game, whereas these guys were all just immersed in it.
1: Don Mattingly famously said, who's kind of half a generation after these guys, that when he was growing up in Indiana, he thought Babe Ruth wasn't a real person, right, which maybe tells you more about the Indiana school system or something. <laughs> but, but but you're exactly right i mean to 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 become good enough to play in the major leagues today requires a commitment from the eight nine ten eleven twelve fifteen year old that it did not a generation ago, and that and part of that commitment is not having time to study the box scores to read." Uh, baseball histories to collect baseball cards that those are now two different groups of people. Whereas in Bloomberg and Munson generation, it it wasn't. Right.
2: Absolutely. For someone who people on here will know is a child of the seventies in New York and got the baseball addiction, whatever you want to call it, fandom in 1977 in Yankee stadium. I want to talk about the fights. (laughs) Because as a seven, eight, and nine-year-old in those days in Yankee Stadium, sometimes with my grandparents, I loved it. And these guys have given me, well, we've had a few conversations about fans who fight and hate the Red Sox and all this kind of stuff and the virtues and detriments of that. Um, but I loved it. And I, I you know, the story about um, the, the, the fight with Carlton Fisk and their ongoing rivalry and the way in which also the, the, they would watch the um, fights in the stands, as I did. And, the, you know, either the ushers or the police just like constantly, you would see this wave of activity across the ball field and you knew it was like, ah, there's a fight. Um, and it was just such a different atmosphere, which, I mean, as a kid, I enjoyed, I don't know what I would think about it now.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, in some ways I, I kind of liken it to going to rock concerts back in the seventies where it's like, which I didn't go to too many because I was a little too young for that. But I started going to see concerts in about 1978 and, and there was like an element of danger uh, you know, even going to see Billy Joel, like there, there was a possibility that like somebody was gonna, you know, like a fight was gonna break out, somebody was gonna try to like, you know, steal your wallet, you know that there, there was, and there is, there would be a thing, um, and and I remember that about going to to, to uh, baseball games back then, where there was always like, you know, something could go off at any moment uh, in the stands as well as on the field.
1: I grew up in San Francisco. The biggest danger of going to – I mean, there were big fights at Candlestick Park when the Dodgers were in town. Otherwise, the dangers were freezing to death and dying alone with no one around to see you. <laughs>
4: right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I went, I went to some games at Anaheim Stadium in uh, in the 70s. and I remember that being like completely uh, like, you know, dull and absolutely nothing happening. But, you know, going to Tiger Stadium as a kid, going to Dodger Stadium, going to um, – uh, wrigley in in the early eighties it's like there was always just this this element of of danger and and you know and some of that was tickets were cheaper like people it was you know you could you could go there uh you know get wasted fairly inexpensively. And you know, and somebody starts talking shit to you, and you start talking shit back, and things happen and And you know, it, it, we, we talk more about that in this book in terms of Tova, like you said, the the Yankees Red Sox rivalry. Um, and And it was so funny to me to learn that the players kind of got off on watching, watching the fights in the stands as much as you did, you know, that, that, uh, that like this, this was something that, you know, like the game could be going on, you know, in the, on the field, but the guys in the dugout, their attention is all on like what's happening in the upper deck and watching the, the beer flying and the, 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 popcorn flying and, you know, the beat downs and progress. And so it's, yeah, d- definitely a d- different vibe, different time.
2: Well, I imagine that's because the entire stadium would start standing up and like looking and pointing and saying, "Oh, there's that fight, and there's that." Fight. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so everybody yeah. was distracted.
4: Yeah, you know, it was it was like you know, like like the beach balls now, like people going nuts nuts over the beach balls uh, going around, or, or the wave. This this was like the wave of of punches.
3: Yeah, I don't. I, you know, I, I've often tried to figure out. You know, uh, why stadiums are more unruly in that period. You know. Um, Because they're not that way in the 50s and 60s. I mean, they are in certain cases, but, you know, like the whole phenomenon of crowds, you know, rushing fields and all that kind of stuff, it's very much, you know, like a 70s phenomenon, you know, really slows down in the 80s. You see a little bit of that in the 80s, but by by the late 80s, you know, they had policed these ballparks where that stuff doesn't happen. Right. You know, I don't really know why that is. You know, it's an interesting (laughs) kind of, you know, it's not a not a class thing like i don't quite maybe it is you know because like if you look at accounts of of, of you know ball, you know fans who are charging the field it's not like that they're, they're all working class you know like for, for a lot of middle class people who are coming from the suburbs and going to yankee stadium this is their release right. you know, this is their ability to kind of be in in the hood you know um
1: it's the same phenomenon that like in a city like new york and i haven't gone out in new york in a while because you know no one has but you know where you see people behaving badly and it's oftentimes people from okay. outside from like new jersey or somewhere westchester thinking they can do it because, hey, I'm in the city, I can be in it, you know. And and certainly when I go to the bleachers in, in, in Yankee Stadium, which I used to do with some frequency, you know, the last few years, because I'm, you know, cheap, um, mm-hmm. you know, the people starting the fights were not the New Yorkers. It was always people from Jersey and Westchester. So yeah. so I think that in the 70s, these places, they're kind of kind of oddly contested spaces. You know, they're often, I mean, I'm thinking of Candlestick Park where there were fights. Now, that was often between the Dodgers and the Giants fans. But even when it wasn't, because it was – in a an African American neighborhood, easily accessible from the affluent white and middle class white suburbs down the peninsula, and I suspect the geography of that and not you know was was similar in other ballparks, and it was still affordable, and people could still go. And if the team wasn't that good. You know, there were other things going on. <laughs> I mean, it was less of an issue in Oakland, in my experience, because basically marijuana was legal in the bleachers and everyone was just kind of high and that, that worked out fine.
4: But but I mean, I, I do think there there was, uh, you know, I'm sure in New York there was, you know, some of the, the bridge and tunnel crowd uh, issue there. But I, I, th- I think it goes beyond that. I think, I think there was just – there was a lot of negative energy flying around in the 70s uh, that people – you know, had internalized and weren't quite sure how to express or how to how to let it out. And and you know, I think that's you know kind of why you go to a rock concert. And you know, even though this is you know this is music, it should be bringing us all together, man. You know, it it it. I mean, I. I Maybe the Who is not a good example because there was there was always a lot of aggression uh, on stage and elsewhere. But but man, I mean, like like I saw some some gnarly gnarly fights at, at a Who show in '82, and you know it, it just I, I think that that was still. Um, you know, and, and and the the rushing out on the field, and and uh, you know, we don't talk about disco demolition and in, in, in the Captain and Me, but obviously it's a part of Big air and Plastic Grass, and and it's a big kind of seventies touchstone, and like there there, are, this is an event that has been analyzed to death and and kind of re uh, re analyzed, and and um, you know, the, the, there are a lot of theories about it, but I, I think. You know, one thing that I don't think gets talked about a lot is that this is, you know, the 70s kids, like, they had grown up watching their older brothers and sisters go off to, you know, Vietnam protests. And it was it was almost sort of like, like yeah, when we get that age, we're going to, like, you know, sock it to the man as well. But then by the late 70s, there's, you know, there is no Vietnam War. There's nothing really to protest against. You know, it's sort of, it's sort of like, you know, the clash, white riot. I want a riot of my own. I mean, they wanted, they, you know, they wanted a chance to express themselves. But all they had, you know, was disco to rail against, which, you know, was a yeah. stupid thing to rail against and a stupid thing to to, to rally around, uh, you know, and, and get aggro about. But it was just like... Like, hey, we want our time to, to you know uh, uh, hold up signs and 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 uh, express ourselves and kind of you know put our stamp on the era and kind of that's what they were left with. So, I, you know, I feel like like in the it, it, from the mid seventies on, a lot of this aggression that you see at baseball games is sort of like this leftover bad vibes from the Vietnam era that are just like looking to come out somewhere.
6: Life gets a lot more magical when you dream. So let's dream of a vacation unlike any other. A magical Disney cruise. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Where new stories make tales as old as time.
0: Enchanté, mon ami! And
6: your family will be cared for the moment you step aboard. Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line.
5: as you mentioned, disco, uh, you know, thinking about the South side, Comiskey Park of all places having d- disco demolition night and thinking of like the different places where we saw the some of these conflicts around disco were very diverse towns. And yet here we see kind of the separation. Um, Disco was a very diverse, you know, you had white Americans, African-Americans, Latinos, all, uh, you know, queers, all kinds of folks enjoy disco together, and then that becomes a way of kind of differentiating uh, between who we are at the ballpark and who not. Right,
4: right, because it's tribal thing, you know.
1: And I have to put a word in for punk rock here because I think a lot of the energy did go there, and some of it was very positive.
4: Well, it's true. It, was- it just was so... It was such a small right, right. uh faction, and and it was really kind of kept you know intentionally or otherwise was kept out of the mainstream um and 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 there was a very othery thing to that as well i mean like i remember a friend of mine uh going uh, you know halloween 79 in la going to going to school as a punk rocker which basically which basically meant that he you know was wearing a a long sleeve shirt with one sleeve ripped off and a pair of high tops with Devo written on it. And like the amount of abuse he got from, you know, from, from all the rock kids in the, in the hallway was just ridiculous, but it it was sort of like, you know, again, this, this sort of like factionalism that completely didn't need to happen, but, for various reasons, uh, you know, uh, did so it was like I, I think where that positive that energy could have been let off in a positive way if more kids of the of the '70s had been into punk had been you know allowed or allowed themselves to be into punk I think that would have been a great thing but it really didn't play out like that.
5: So I want to take us away from the music scene and back to spring training. I grew up in Fort Lauderdale when the Yankees uh, used to do spring training down there. And I really appreciated the kind of the picture of how spring training was for Bloomberg and, and for Thurman. And also thinking how different it must be today for major leaguer. Because when I go to spring training, I covered a few. They're going off to play golf or do some other thing. They're not going fishing as much as they used to, in my mind.
4: Yeah, that, I mean, that, that was really kind of how Thurman and Ron uh, bonded was on these – afternoon fishing trips that like you know a bunch of yankees would go on and and uh thurman just, you know kid from uh from ohio ron's a kid from, from georgia but like what they have in common is they both they both really love the outdoors and they love uh um uh love fishing and so it was kind of like And, and I think it was a sort of situation where obviously they're standing out on the boat for long periods of time, waiting for the fish to bite. And it gives them a chance to kind of talk in a relaxed environment without any reporters hanging around without, uh, you know, worrying about like what they're going to do on the field the next day, or, you know, am I going to get, you know, cut and sent out of the minors at the end of spring training? It was for just really this kind of mellow scene and, and, uh. Yeah, that that, uh, I think, uh, you know, some of Ron's fondest memories of of his time on the Yankees uh, revolve around spring training.
2: We talk on the podcast a lot about baseball owners, not in a very kind way, usually. Um, And so the the part about when Steinbrenner comes on the scene is inevitably interesting and, and amusing, I guess. Uh, if you want to talk about sort of Thurman Munson's and Rob Blilberg's, uh relationship with, with Steinbrenner and how that really changed incredibly the dynamic of the clubhouse.
4: Yeah, I mean, they were very excited for Steinbrenner to take the team over because it was pretty clear to them, uh, as it was clear to you know many observers at the time, that uh, CBS, as the Yankees' owners, didn't really want to spend a lot of money on the team, didn't really want to... Uh, you know, didn't didn't care about getting the right pieces in place for the pennant race, um, and they felt like you know, with George coming in, like this is it, George made it real clear to them from the beginning, like you know, this is this is a team with a great history, and I want to restore it to its former glory, and you know, I'm going to do all this stuff to to make it easier for you guys to win. So they were all into that, and then. You know, for for the first three or four months of '73, that that Steinbrenner's in in charge. Like they're, you know, maybe even not that long before he shows his his true colors when he completely freaks out that the Yankees like didn't beat the Mets in their uh, Mayor's Cup game. You know, this this midseason uh, exhibition game that really means absolutely nothing, but Steinbrenner. Completely lost his shit when you know, like Ralph Houk wasn't wasn't putting the A squad out there to uh, to to beat the Mets, and so it's like that that was kind of when they realized like okay this guy's this guy's operating on a different level here, and you know uh, they and 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 then of course Ralph Houk who they you know to a man the seventy three Yankees all just adore. He's been the Yankee skipper since I think 66 at that point. Um, and, and part of the Yankees for much longer than that. So like to see him say like, I can't take this guy. I got to go uh, was kind of traumatic for a lot of the players uh, because they were just so used to him, him being there and, and being, uh, you know, kind of their dad there and, um, but at the same time, like they real, and, and then, of course, like in 70, early 74, you get this instance where uh, it, the Yankees kind of make their first big blockbuster trade under Steinbrenner, where, you know, like they pretty much trade half their pitching staff to Cleveland in exchange for like Chris Shambliss and Dick Tidrow and a couple other guys. And the Yankees, like, you know, the the, the players is excited as they are to have a owner who wants to win at all costs like like this this again is kind of traumatic to them like they've never seen this many of their friends and family just you know go in one big blockbuster trade and and this is really actually the first time that you see Thurman saying to the press well hell trade me to cleveland like if this is the way it's going to be I don't want to be here I want to be in cleveland Home near my family, and this, of course, becomes a, a big refrain for Thurman through uh, the rest of his life. Uh, where and and pretty much every time he gets into it with Steinbrenner, and they get into it a lot uh, over his whether it's over his uh, you know how much he's getting paid in 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 you know in relation to what Reggie Jackson's getting paid, or you know over whether or not he's he's shaving enough for Steinbrenner's uh, you know preference. Uh, you know that this this is this is a a this is, becomes a big part of the story. Like you know, will Thurman get traded to Cleveland? Do, you know, is he serious about this? Does he you know is he just pulling off steam or is this something he really wants?
1: That trade fascinates me. That section of the book fascinates me because what what struck me is that that's only a good trade if you know that Ron Bloomberg is going to effectively not have a career. Right. Because because a healthy Ron Bloomberg and look, Chris Chambliss has a special place in the heart of all Yankees fans. We can start with that but a healthy Ron Bloomberg is a better player than a healthy Chris Shambliss. And they couldn't have known that at the time, but that doesn't come out in the book. But And on the other hand, you know, Ralph Houck, everyone thought of him as as whatever, their dad or their beloved uncle or something, but they were never going to go anywhere with Ralph Houck managing that team. He wasn't a very good manager, right? I mean, they make other trades too where they get, you know, Greg Nettles for a song. They fleece the pirates out of Willie Randolph. I mean, you know, you don't make – you want to stay in third place and however – I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, I think a baseball player, a, you know, a high has a right to make a good living, finish in third place, and not have to deal with the crap. But that's not <laughs> what an owner or the fan base wants. So that, that really struck me, that section.
4: Yeah, and, and you know, I think uh, – well, I think to some degree, like, you know, Ron was getting a lot of playing times at DH. So I don't think he saw Shambles as a threat. Uh, per se. And, um, you know, and, and maybe that was naive of him, but, um, I think as, you know, we can, as, as he himself says several times in the book, he was kind of a naive guy and, uh, didn't, you know, didn't really put those kind of things together. The other thing is that, you know, Ron was, Ron was getting platooned a lot, uh, pretty much his entire career. And so I don't think, you know, in that sense too, I don't think, uh, You know, he was worried about uh, uh, losing playing time to Chris because Chris was probably going to be the and, and, you know, obviously was going to be the starting first baseman and Ron was going to be platooned at DH most of the
3: time. So we've talked about, you know, jokingly once in a while, but but I'd like to bring it up more intentionally here, which is, you know, the relationship between baseball and Jewishness. You know, because Bloomberg is well known, right? Not just because he's just the first designated hitter, to, you know, in, in American League history, baseball history, but uh, you know, he's a Jewish player, and that was part of the way in which he was, you know, you know, packaged to the, to the Yankees. And these moments in the book that are really interesting, not just the deli scenes, but like him getting an apartment in Riverdale, you know, which is a, you know, still a very affluent part of the Bronx. I mean, it's in the Bronx, you know, geographically, right. but it's not in the Bronx in a lot of ways. In fact, he even mentions that Willie Mays lived there. Is that right? Which is interesting. That's interesting. Willie Mays in Riverdale.
4: Yeah, well well Will, had the penthouse apartment uh, Ron was down on the second floor but uh, uh yeah and and actually they did, yeah he he and Willie did go out to one of the local delis uh, 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 when they met and yeah, uh, yeah it and and you know I think this is this was you know the the signing of Ron by the Yankees uh, w- uh back in 67 was a very calculated thing because you know, they were clearly hurting at the gate. And uh, they thought that by having a Jewish star that that would uh, improve their attendance. And I, th- I think it actually did. Um, and and cer- Or at least, you know, certainly ramped up a lot of, like, local Jewish community group uh, interest in the team. And, and, you know, as Ron likes to say, he was, you know... He, like, like basically everybody, every Jewish person in New York uh, referred to him as their cousin and invited him to uh, their Seder dinners or, uh, you know, to, to to their kids' bar mitzvahs or, or whatever. And, and uh, you know, and, and that was a role that he really enjoyed uh, playing. I mean, Ron is not a very, Ron is not an observant Jew per se, but he is, you know, a, uh, he's a very proud Jew. And really, I think... That was, you know, as much as the, Yan- you know, the Yankees saw a, a uh, potential, you know, celebrity, uh, Jewish celebrity thing happening with Ron, I think Ron really felt like the Yankees were the only, the only team that he really wanted to play for because, A, he was a Yankees fan, but also that connection of, of, of New York and Judaism and feeling like, you know, he got, you know, he got off the plane uh, the very first plane trip he ever takes he goes to goes to New York and you know gets off the plane at the airport gets in a cab and the cabby's Jewish you know and this is like something that would never have happened to him in Atlanta you know there were no Jewish cab drivers so it, it so it, it was a very symbiotic relationship Ron, Ron and the Yankees
1: and also this is happening at a time where the United States and New York is much more Jewish than it is today. Right? I think for right. younger listeners. I mean, that, that that's that's worth noting. And it's also coming at a time where there is still, in the, and it's kind of its last gasps, but still a large Jewish working class and lower middle class in New York. Today, you're unlikely to get that Jewish cab driver, right? Today, the idea right. of – today, um, we were talking a little bit earlier, but Jewish delis are kind of – they're for tourists. They're for kind of weird Jewish – Culinary theme parks, but they're not for like Jews to go and eat lunch. And this was still the last years of that period.
3: Yeah, I mean, across. So, I you know, we mentioned Riverdale, which is a more affluent part of you know Jewish New York. But I mean, you're right, Lincoln. Like, I mean, you are seeing you know, in this book. I mean, that's what I like. Right, I, I kind of like the way which you're getting a sense of the you know, of the Bronx in that period. Right, and I guess also just a relation between the Yankees and Jewish New York identity, certainly Jewish Bronx identity. Is, it's, it's it's significant, profound. You know, the Concourse Plaza Hotel. Would always have you know, Concourse Grand Concourse was a major you know thoroughfare, a place where affluent Jews lived. But that hotel hosted Bob Misses, <laughs> was all sorts of things, right? So there's this deep relationship that you're seeing snapshots of you know in the late '60s, early '70s in this book, and so it reminds me of the ways in which Jane Levy writes about Sandy Koufax or you know the Hank Greenberg story. You know, in other words, it's it's it, it's you know aside from the marketing aspect, it really does give you a sense of the relationship between baseball and Jewish New York. It does
4: yeah and and again the, like, the this is so much of what I wanted to achieve with this book is like you know what- you know not only what what was it like to be a ball player in those days but what was it like to be a ball player in new york uh in the late sixties and early seventies and and because that is uh, you know that is something that's gone on so many levels and you know and and it's a period that obviously I find endlessly fascinating and uh you know, but but I, I wanted uh, to make sure that we shared that with, with the readers.
2: When you refer to, so um, Ron refers to Thurman Munson as an honorary Jew. <laughs> so it seems like that was fairly positively received even by the teammates. He, and they went to the garment district yeah. <laughs> when there was a garment district. And that's where they were buying their clothes.
4: And and, and the, my the grandfather. <laughs> right, yeah. And and the great thing is that, you know, and and that was the thing, like Ron being this Jewish star was getting invitations, you know, I mean, like people would come up, you know, come up up to him at the ballpark and like hand them their card and just be like, you know, come come on down, I'll, I'll, I'll hook you up, you know, get you some suits. And so he would take Thurman with him, and Thurman, you know, is is about you know is like total anti-fashion plate. Right. Like this is a guy who would wear the same three same t-shirt for three days, uh, pretty much. Like every fo- every press photo, you know, or this press conference or you know um, you know award dinner or whatever you see of Thurman, uh, he's wearing the same plaid polyester sports jacket, but. You know, he would go down to the garment district with 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 Ron, and you know, and and these, you know, he would be offered all these suits and these these shirts, and and you know, j- just because he wanted to be polite, he would he would you know he didn't want to offend these guys, he would take them. So he'd come back to the clubhouse with like you know all these hangers full of like you know lime green leisure suits and things like this, and then would just never wear them. Whereas Ron would actually wear them.
1: But this is also at a time where the Oakland A's are winning the World Series with right. two Jews making a major contribution, which is a new thing in baseball, right? Mike Epstein and Ken Holtzman, and I believe nineteen seventy-two, and it's very different being a, a Jewish player on the Oakland A's, right? I mean, it's a very different. And, I, and another parenthetical about Willie Mays living in Riverdale, which I, which is worth noting, is that Riverdale is an affluent Jewish community. He he, the Giants when he, when he right. moved to San Francisco, Willie Mays tries right. to get a place in in an affluent, so Mays was living in Riverdale after he came back to the Mets, just to get the chronology here. He tried to get a place in an affluent Catholic neighborhood, and they wouldn't let him, right? The Neighborhood Association, all of this. So it is, you know, it's still, if you're an African-American superstar, there's only one Willie Mays, but nonetheless, and this is only a few years later, you're still navigating that. A lot of the players on the Giants, particularly African-American players, never lived in San Francisco. They always lived down the peninsula, in Atherton and Menlo Park and places like that.
4: Wow, well, I did not know that, but but yeah, I mean, obviously, like things, like I I don't know I don't know what the what the deal was with Riverdale in the '60s, but obviously, you know, by the early '70s, like you know, I, I don't know how cool it would have been for you know an average black family to move in, but obviously, they had no problem with Willie Mays,
1: right? Amazingly, in the '50s in San Francisco, Willie Mays. I mean, the team has worked so hard to get it, yeah. and they have. I mean, and, and the mayor had to intervene, and it was very strange and not good. Wow. Well,
3: I have to ask about, so, you know, so, you know, on the one hand, this is a, this is a book about Bloomberg and Munson, but the Bloomberg story just jumped out at me more, maybe because of my own interest. But, you know, I was wondering what, you know, what in the end, you know, you sort of, you address, you know, why you decided to frame the Munson story with with Bloomberg. But, you know, what what do you think we're learning more about Munson, you know, after doing this book, what you learned, perhaps, you know, given that you're viewing, you know, Thurman through Bloomberg's eyes.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, like I said at, at the beginning of of this, I, I was a Thurman fan from back when I was a kid, but I all, I only saw like you know, I saw the talented player, I saw the team captain, I saw the gruff one syllable answers to sports writers uh, kind of guy. I didn't really you know, and, and I knew from reading Marty Appel's book that he was a family man, and you know, and obviously that played a big part in why he wanted to. You know, learn to fly and go back to you know go back to Ohio every chance he could get uh, was because he was so devoted to his wife and kids. But what really struck me with this story, and, and actually when Ron and I were first talking and he was telling me about Thurman, what really made me decide to want to you know the, that that this this is a book that we should write was the whole bit about Ron's uh, injuries and how Thurman kind of. Helped him through that period. I mean, for people who haven't read the book or don't know much about Ron Bloomberg, basically Ron lost two and a half seasons to uh, two and a half solid seasons to really bad injuries, first his shoulder and then his knee. And and the knee thing was especially tragic because after a year and a half, he'd worked his way back uh, from the shoulder injury, uh, which was so bad they had to like fly him out to Frank Jobe to... Uh, to, to, to get that repaired. Uh, And then literally right before the 77 squad is due to uh, go, you know, up to New York and start the season, Billy Martin starts Ron in left field uh, against the Red Sox. There's a position Ron is not that uh, conversant with at this point. Uh, And they're playing against the Red Sox in Winter Haven where there's like basically you know, the outfield walls are cinder block, and there's not much of a warning track. And Ron, because, you know, you got to play hard, especially against the Red Sox, uh, Ron basically runs straight into the cinder block wall and and completely destroys his knee. And so he's out for another season. And, you know, this is, you know, for for uh, for, for athletes, obviously, like, you know, so much of their self-worth is wrapped in, like, you know, can I play? Can I help? And for baseball players, it's like, can I help the team? And so much of their relationship with their teammates is around, can I, you know, can I contribute? And to not be able to contribute, especially at a time when the Yankees are suddenly, you know, playoff-bound again, when they are, like, you know, the best team in the American League, maybe in in the majors, and Ron's just got to sit there and watch, and so you know, so th- this was incredibly damaging to his psyche, and and then on top of it, you have the players, you know, his fellow players, you know, his brothers, kind of inching away from him, like this dude's bad luck, this dude. This dude is jaking. This guy is, you know, he could be out there helping us, but he's not. You know, even though, like, they obviously saw him destroy his knee, um, there's this real kind of negative energy that that comes down and makes him feel even worse. And as he's dealing with all this, the one player who, out, out of all these guys, who takes time out of his day every single day to kind of cheer him on, touch base with him, see how he's doing, uh, tell him, you know not to give up is Thurman and and you know the Thurman that i was aware of as a kid like that's not what i ever pictured him doing and and then you know you think about it and you think about it like here's the team captain here's the catcher who is working with the pitchers every day you know on a you know has a game plan has a you know concept of how they're going to go after these hitters and then this is a guy who is like you know one of the pressure points in this insane Bronx clubhouse where like, you know, it's controversy is swirling around every day. And, you know, the reporters want to talk to Thurman because Reggie has said this about him or, you know, Steinbrenner is saying this. And yet through all of this, like, I mean, he, he has so much on his plate and yet he still makes time to like check in with Ron and just be like, Hey man, don't give up, like, you can do this, 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 don't listen to what these guys are saying. In fact, they're saying what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to tell them to shove it and, 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 you know, uh, back off because, you know, because I can see that you're trying. I mean, this is this, this is a whole side of Thurman that I didn't know about. I'm not sure anybody knew about. And I felt like this needs to, people need to know about
5: this part of it. We have come to the end of another episode of Say It Ain't Contagious. I would like to thank Dan Epstein for spending this time with us. You can check out the book, The Captain Me, as well as his other works wherever books are sold. You can follow us at S-I-A-C-Pod on Twitter. And if you find yourself with the proverbial moment of despair, please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe. It helps the show gain attention I am Stephen Goldman on behalf of Lincoln Mitchell Craig Calcaterra Adrian Burgos Tova Wang Frank Gritty and myself I remind you that life is full of difficult decisions is it love or is it limerence for us it is definitely love which is why we'll see you next time on Say It Ain't Contagious
1: What does that even mean? Is it love or is it limericks? Limerence What is does limerence. that mean? Look it up <laughs> I thought you said limericks.
5: It's a real word.
4: Childhood is wanting a variety
0: of different baked sweets and someone telling you no. Adulthood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and being able to go right to Mickey D's to get every single one you want. Whenever you want, get the new glazed pull-apart donut and a ninety-nine cents any-sized iced coffee with pumpkin spice flavor. Sweet prices and participation may vary. Limited time only. Iced coffee promo available until eleven a.m. Ba da ba
6: ba ba. Life gets a lot more magical when you dream. So let's dream of a vacation unlike any other—a magical Disney cruise. <laughs> Hiya, pal. Where new stories meet tales as old as time.
0: Enchanté, mon ami.
6: And your family will be cared for the moment you step aboard. Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise, and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line.